I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of I-94 Live at the Dial Bookstore. We're coming to you today on February, is it February 20th today? I keep it is. losing yes. time of everything. Yeah. Man, yeah, it's like almost a palindromic date. We had a, we did have a real palindrome earlier, like hadn't happened in a couple hundred years. Was it 0202? Yeah, it was super cool, man. Yeah, I like that. Anyway, I'm Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And today... We're with the author of a brand new book, which I'm holding up. You cannot see it because this is radio, not television. It is called The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. It is a novel out now from Michael Zapata, available on the Hanover Square Press. Please give it up for Michael, who's joining us today. And probably wondering what he's gotten himself into already. (laughs) Uh, So let's start off with this one. This uh, just came out for sale, what, last week, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, yeah. The Congratulations. Fourth. Thank you. That's awesome, A lot dude. of press, a lot of positive. I saw New Yeah, York a lot of positive books. views. Kirkus liked it. Kirkus actually reviewing something's a positive stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, that never happens. New York uh, Times. New York Times, did they review it? Yeah. Who did? Oh, Blake yeah. Garner? It was, was it in the uh, New York Times book section. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. Well, good job. Usually if Dwight reads something, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, You've had a long career here in Chicago. You're part of Make Magazine. Uh, yeah. You've taught here. Can you talk a little bit before we actually get into the substance of the book uh, and the very unusual cover that is causing booksellers dismay, uh, <laughs> dismay because people nice. keep coming in and asking for the book with holes in it. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I, I can already tell you certain booksellers uh, <laughs> may, have, may have had some issues with that. Tell us a little bit about how uh, the Chicago Literary Establishment, and particularly Make Magazine, which has been around, I think they did 18 issues. You guys have shifted now to online. Yeah. Uh, ha- really kind of gave you the background and the confidence to do this. Yeah, so um, 15 years ago, um, a few people, good friends, um, Sarah Dotson being one of them, and Ramson Cannon, we right. started. Yeah, where is Sarah? I thought she'd show up she, here. Come on, Sarah. Sarah was just in Mexico City for... Uh-huh. Make uh, literary magazines lit loose festival. Oh, lit loose! Yeah, of course we do that at Co Prosperity Sphere too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. she. Um, well, I'm calling her out. I expected her to be here. <laughs> where Sarah? Are you, Sarah? Yeah, where She's are healing. you? She okay. was sick. Right. She unfortunately oh. got sick in Mexico oh, City. I'm, sorry. Um, well, I'm still calling you out, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, you know, so we really put together very naively, being that young, thinking of not only wanting to start a literary magazine, but noticing that we were sort of accidentally meeting. Um, all throughout the city, people who were involved in their own literary circles, um, different neighborhoods, stretching you know, all the way from the south side all the way up to Andersonville. We, had, we were meeting people, especially with me being first-generation Latino, I would try to go to readings in Pilsen. And then I found out that writers and amazing writers in Pilsen were not having too much contact with other people, right? People who m- might live in, in Lincoln Square or Logan Square at that time. So we just kind of naively jumped into starting this literary magazine, um, really devoted each issue to a theme. We took our time with it. That you know, we set, um, we set schedules, but if it didn't fall into place, we wanted to make sure that the writing w- was, was up to par and that we were happy with the issues. So that just sort of developed slowly and it kind of became its own thing. I'm mad excited. We we are, you know, much more transitioning to like the Lit Loose Festival has taken over, which is um, once a year we send artists and writers to Mexico City and, you know, hosting a lot of different events. And then once a year, 
artists and writers from Mexico City come to Chicago. So it becomes this like very like international, transnational experience, which we're mad excited about. When is that uh, occurring in Chicago this year? Um, it's going to be occurring in the fall. In the fall. So usually, okay. co- yeah, is it fall every year? Yeah, fall every okay. year. Okay, I went then, to one at the Copro. Wow, oh, nice. Two years ago? Three years yeah, ago? Yeah, I mean, we've yeah. had at least one of the events, satellite events. I think we did the main thing for a couple of years, and then you guys, where, where were you guys this year? Were you at the, you weren't at the CAA. Which which was your main building this year? The, the main show is at the MCA. Oh, was it the MCA? Yeah, it That's was at right. the MCA. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And They're so not as nice as the Co-Prosperity no, no. <laughs> no. It's a and little smaller, too. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> smaller. The people smell weirder, and, you know, <laughs> tough. And, you, you know, Sarah, yeah. uh, she at the helm of this has just done extraordinary things. And so we did have our last print issue this past fall. It was number 18. So that was, I felt very sentimental after 15 years. Um, but there will be, again, the magazine will be continuing online. So, And of course, you, you know, you met, as you mentioned, you, you really have, and, and uh, Michael's not exaggerating. I mean, the Lit and Loose Festival is kind of blown up, but you have a, a really remarkable uh, roster of literary talents going back and forth between uh, Chicago and Mexico City, which is a wonderful thing, especially with Chicago's tremendous history of having a, a huge Mexican immigrant yeah, population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in recent years with things that have been happening at the national level, too, that kind of dialogue is even more important, which kind of takes me into the kind of dialogue that you're having in your newest book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a dialogue, you know, it's interesting, we were speaking the other day with Tope uh, Folloran, whose new book, A oh, Particular nice. Kind of Black Man, has been described uh, as an immigrant novel or an immigrant story as well. And he pushed back very strongly on that and said, no, you know, my book is more rooted in science fiction and it's mm-hmm. more Identity. rooted yeah, in the yeah. idea of, of dreaming a reality for yourself. And I thought it was very interesting that we have your book kind of back to back with this one. Yeah. Because your book, and I will, you know, regular listeners to the show know I'm a huge uh, pop culture comic book fan. I suspect that you were a reader of Conan. And sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sci-fi. Oh, yeah. Uh, some of the things seemed very, you know, Lost City of Z obviously mm-hmm. popped in there. The idea that you can kind of create your own reality is, is a particularly seductive one, I think, particularly in this age with the internet the yeah, advent yeah. of, artif- of uh, artificial intelligence, of, of virtual reality. I wondered if you could talk about it a little bit, because I, I noticed in some of your reviews, oh, you know, Michael Zapata has written this wonderful immigrant novel, and the first thing I thought of was like, well, you know, really? maybe Pe- that's, that's not actually, you know, that's not actually the case. That's I think yeah, I think what he's actually talking about is something different. Could you, could you, you know, just speak a little bit to that? Well, I also think critics just, they say everything's an immigrant novel because yeah. that's what sells right now, but that this... Just like Florin's book, that that was not what came to mind. Yeah. For me, it was about, well, some ways abandonment, family, mm-hmm. um, losing s- touch with your roots, losing touch of your familial story. There was so much to it, and it, like obviously there was immigration, um, but that's not what yeah that's not what I thought about when I read it. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree because essentially, I think the book is f- made of people who are exiles. There have been exiles for thousands of years, but when you talk about immigration, you're essentially talking about sovereignty and national sovereignty, which is a very new like, human concept. Like, If you ask someone 200 years ago in Latin America or in France, wh- what do you most identify with? It's, it's their town, it's their family, and it's the people that they're involved with day to day. So I think it's no mistake that the press, who is obsessed with sovereignty and nationalism, is uses those terms like immigration so loosely for things that essentially have to do with like 
deeper loss and, and, and sort of human lineage and exile. For me, it was, it, I feel very comfortable saying it's a story of exile and, and human exile far exceeds immigration. Well, that brings me to the next point. The book opens with, I, I did not know, this is something I didn't know and uh, blame public school system. <laughs> Um, no, no, no. Let's the, not crap all over the CPS. <laughs> Blame the textbooks. <laughs> I, didn't go to C- I didn't go to CPS. I went to a very oh, that's right. fancy crap suburban crap school in Detroit. Detroit. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was unaware that the Marines were overthrew the government in, in Dominican Republic. Yeah. And in a sense, the in, is it Adana? Adana? Adana, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, we're, we're bad at pronunciation. Adana was forced immigration. I mean, her family was murdered, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm giving anything away. It's on the first page, but apparently, the uh, the U.S. government had control of the Dominican Republic from 1919 yeah. to 1924. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, and it, a lot of this, just like so much of American empire, was at the behest of business. It was at sugar, the behest right? of sugar. sugar yeah. In addition to sugar plantations, you know, other resources there, but that was a large you know, kind of forms the backbone of what we now call, like, you know, the Banana Republic. And, yeah, so she forced exile with American Marines. And, you know, just like today, those sugar farmers, it's my understanding they knew exactly why they were being pushed out. You know, this is disaster capitalism stretching back um, from the late 1800s till today. And there hasn't been a change in the way the American empire interacts with Latin America. Um, and, And so we have these stories, I think, that, like Adana's story of exile is, is is exactly similar to the exile we see in Central America happening right now. Yeah, and of course those that pattern, I mean, it wasn't just America either. I mean Correct. it yeah, was yeah, Europe yeah. and I mean Haiti was right next door to the Dominican yes. Republic and, and they obviously had similar problems as well. That's not to take away from your point, but yeah. it is to note that the world that you're writing about uh, was seen basically as a fertile place to exploit. Correct. Yeah, you know, it absolutely. was raw materials. The people for centuries. didn't matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. for centuries. I mean, the conquistadors came and you know they saw lots of gold and and uh, other things and took it. So yeah. I, I think in some ways you're speaking to a, in a weird way a deeper thing. Even though you are talking about the displacement of people due to, um, I think what we could fairly call corrupt business practices. Mm-hmm. There was that history of loss that runs through those people stretching back a thousand years. Yeah. There yeah. is a continued strain of displacement. And what's interesting is that while we in America, uh, we are an immigrant nation, you know, I came here from, from Scotland, you know, you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, are um, Latino and Jewish, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? We're a, a polyglot thing. We don't have that necessary history of displacement. Nobody yeah. told us to move out of Chicago necessarily yeah, yeah. Uh, because they wanted to go build an oil well. You know what I mean? Nobody said, uh, get out of Detroit so we can take all your sugar. That, that is a fish, particular yeah. thing. Well, you, you know, take yeah. your fish. That's a particular <laughs> thing, though, to, to this area that you're writing about, <laughs> Excuse me. which makes some of these stories and some of the kind of fantastical legends that you're talking about the, some of the reasons I've always felt that things like the Lost City of Z and the fascination mm. with the Incans and the Aztecs and the fascination of, of Western authors, you know, uh, from Arthur Conan Doyle right through Robert E. Howard with this is because that displacement stretches for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that you can hide, in a sense, 
whole cultures that may have existed, but we don't know because yes. people were getting wiped out all the time, which is something you really use as a staircase for your novel. Yeah, and you know, I thinking of lost world, so to speak, and it just becomes this common thread in sort of Western mythology and literature and stretches back to science fiction to the Victorian age when of course, yeah. they're quote unquote saying they're discovering places. Um, Such as Lemuria and yes. uh, yeah, know, yeah. Hollow Earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what is Lemuria? Lemuria was a, uh, invented, I believe, in the late 1800s, and it was the supposedly the sister city of the lost city of Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Oh. And it was part of the hollow earth theory, and I'm going to screw this up, and my wife is going to kill me, <laughs> because she knows this stuff backwards and forwards. Uh, but I believe it was, again, a, a Victorian-era English novel about, again, a mythical place. But I believe the Lemurians lived in the earth, and they were related to the lizard people. Oh, I think that I'm, might be right. Alex Jones. I think I'm right. That, Am I, I think people are <laughs> people are nodding knowingly. I'm going to go with it. So, uh, no, but I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, there, there was so much of that in the book, and, and I, being a cr tremendous nerd, that was what I gravitated yeah, 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 to. Yeah. I was like, man, I wish he would, you know, let's let's go through this mirror again. Let's talk a little more about these weird lizard people. To me, to me, that is is what really grabbed me about it. But it was interesting thinking and, and talking to you now about this. How much of that really is based on? It's not a secret history. It's a history that we kind of have willingly forgotten. Yes. You know, yeah. The reason that those stories are told is because they occurred in a space because people went in there and ripped, every, ripped everybody yeah. apart. Yeah. So it was and very easy for some white guy in 1882 to go, oh, it's completely plausible. Now that, let's fictionalize yeah. yes. and moving yeah. forward. So like, I, I always found fascinating, and Adana becomes fascinated in it too, but this in, in, the, in the novel, but this fascination not only with lost histories, but at the end of the Victorian empire, this fascination with creating history as fictions, creating entire fictions. And so it wasn't even in the science fiction novels, but when you look at old Victorian newspapers that would come home with fantastical stories predating yellow journalism, um, I remember distinctly reading about this Victorian journalist who convinced people that in Latin America, indigenous people had heads in the middle of their chests, that there were giant spiders the size of small homes. Like he right. convinced uh, this illusionary history. So I, I kept thinking how much was Britain going around the world, not only like replicating fictions, but forcing their own illusionary history yeah, on others. I know Jeremy wants to get a question, but yeah. you know, just but we spoke about Ben Hecht fairly recently as well. And Ben Hecht, when he was working for the Chicago News, made up things out of whole cloth. <laughs> you know, he he wrote about marauding gangs and pirates in the streets of Chicago. <laughs> so this wasn't just a, you know, I right, guess yeah. my point is that this wasn't just a crazy, oh, these crazy English people <laughs> who are crazy, by the way. They just left the European Union. Um, I do <laughs> want to point that out. Uh, but no, this this whole thing and these whole histories and I, again, I want to let Jeremy jump in here, but I, I want to come back to this thread in a second because one of the other things you do very brilliantly is kind of have this imagined thread of history through the book, which is mm. something that, that dates way back, and I, yeah, I, I yeah, do yeah. want to jump into that. So. Uh, Mike's going to say something, and I'll say something. We'll go back to Jay. Okay. Um, well, we're talking about one side of the coin with, with uh, people of exile and, and the places they come from in yeah. terms of fabricated history, but there's, there's also... a huge theme of preservation yeah. in the book. Yeah, um, yeah. And we, we were talking a little bit about historical novels before the show. Did you did you think of this as a historical novel or more of a, as a fantastical novel? That, yeah, that's a great question. I, I didn't think too much of it. I always like to think of this as 
when you look at the present, like I, I do think it's a novel of the present because of the sense of when you look at the present, you're forced to deal with how the past and the future collide in the present. So we pull with us this historical weight or this historical thread with us no matter, even if we don't know what that historical thread is, which is a common American problem, you're still anchored to it in ways that we possibly might not understand. It, that The past is like shadows from other worlds. But then when you're dealing with the present, we're human. So we're always conditionally thinking about future possibilities and what is potentially available to us in the future based on her historical anchors. And that is that is the narrative of an exile. That is the narrative of an exile who is pulling with them across continents, across nations and oceans, this historical narrative, but has to find themselves on these new shores, so to speak, and imagine a future that's available to them and contest with the futures that are absolutely closed to them. So when I think of science fiction or fantasy or futurism, and I think of historical writing, they were interchangeable in, in the way uh, I thought about how they functioned. That's actually a great segue for my question. One of my favorite things about doing this show is, you know, I, is learning about new authors. Uh, Jamie has turned me on to a ton of authors. Jamie's mother has turned me on to a bunch of authors, awesome. and Mike and, and Aaron and Mary, the owners of the bookstore. And my question is, some of the authors and books that you talk about are made up. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And some of them are not. Yeah. So what made you decide to have that transition with made-up books and mm -hmm. also real books? Because I, a couple authors I looked up, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, these guys aren't real. And I was just wondering what... Uh, I guess, inspired you to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it sucks. We only have one life, and I want to, like, write more books and <laughs> get ideas for books, and you're like, I, I, I'm never going to write this. But it's it, it pulls. I tried to pull distinctly from there's this really fun sort of modernist, like, Latin American game. Borges was the master of it, just creating this landscape this invented landscape. Bolaño did it, life. too. Bolaño, yeah, yeah. like Roberto Bolaño, I was going to say, 2666 yeah. immediately came up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, oh, Nazi great. literature of the Americas. Yes, oh that God. was the one. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, invents yeah, yeah. a bunch oh, of... Oh, that, that is... I, I'm, I shiver every time I think about that book. Great Both book. of them, but Nazi literature. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this... It, it is this, in one sense, this literary game, but it also is playing off this idea of Latin America being a place which has had to contest with histories more so than the United States layered on top of each other that sustain themselves. So like, for example, I was speaking before the show, my, my grandmother's indigenous, she's, she's, she's Quechua. And you have this extraordinary thing in many Latin American countries where although the Spanish and the Brazilian tried their uh, utmost to erase these histories, they persisted. And so you have this like Latin American literature in which invented histories become a form of, of power, right? Well, you know, I'm gonna invent my own literature and it also becomes this just like fun board haze type game. I found just straight up as a writer that once I started summarizing fake novels, I couldn't stop. Like it was just on one level, it was just pure. It's kind of fun. a huge theme in the book, like <laughs> yeah. real and non-real books. The, yeah. the summarization of books to people who are non-readers. So yes. when I was reading it, I was wondering if you had a lot of friends, close friends, who aren't big readers. Yeah. So I. Uh, you know, I grew up in um, Old Irving Park and then Roselle, a suburb of Chicago, and many of my friends dropped out of high school. Many of my friends didn't become readers until much, much later in life. Um, and so I did, I did spend, I'm, 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 and I'm, I'm so that really happy because, that you said that. Because I came yeah, late. I came late to reading. Yeah. So it was something that, like, 
was magnetizing for me. It really, yeah, it really forces me to think of the joy of being young and reading sort of nerdy yeah, yeah. science fiction books and then skateboarding with friends. I had a just ta- somewhat, summarizing it for somewhat them. similar. Yeah. A lot of the guys I grew up with are not readers. And yeah. Some of them are dead. Some of them are in prison. Yeah. And yeah, it's just we weren't talking about literature. Yeah. <laughs> What's extraordinary to me is, too, is I taught, you know, for 10 years, I taught in Humboldt Park. I taught dropout students, re-enrollment high, uh, high school students through CPS programs, Alternative Schools Network. And what I found is 95% of the students that walked in my classroom, just like any human, loved and stories. We're just so good at telling stories, had inhabited an oral tradition, stretching, you know, like we were saying, back right. through Puerto Rico, back through Mexico, um, back to Eastern Europe, and it this the ways in which literature high school classrooms can destroy literature for students, right? Like with oh, handouts, find the metaphor, me. or, just kills it. Read but, the Great Gatsby in eighth grade. I always bring that up because I had to read the Great Gatsby in eighth grade, and I'm just like, what's wrong with this rich jerk? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and, I, and but what I found is when you when when like growing up and skateboarding with my friends and stripping away sort of the literariness and getting to the core of the fact that humans tell stories for very specific survival reasons. Language and stories emerge like simultaneously for a million years. And then it's not so much that literature was the problem, it was the ways in which literature was abjectly taught to them for testing. Yeah. And for getting in trouble or for handing, filling out these terrible handouts. Or for control. Or for control. Control is the perfect word. Control is the perfect word. Control of culture. Right. Well, and I want to get to that because it's you made a very interesting point a couple minutes ago about Latin America's invented fiction. And you said, you know, uh, my grandmother is an indigenous person. The people tried to erase her culture. I wanted to flip that on its head because some of the invented culture was, in fact, trying to erase some of the indigenous cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of Latin Americans, uh, and that is kind of the flip side, in a sense, of of some of the stuff you're talking about. Um, It's it's all well and good to sit here and, and talk about fake novels and there's a great you know tradition of things like the necronomicon yeah, which is yeah, a yeah, fake yeah. book passed yeah. down through dozens of books from hp lovecraft right right along yeah. uh august Lath and all those people but the the flip side of that and it's a more sinister side is that some of the stories that we do tell are to cover up some of the uncomfortable things that happen yes, I mean, if we yeah. go back yeah, yeah. and look at say for example the story of lemuria some some of that story is talking about people who are subhuman. They live yeah. under the earth. Yeah. They're they're different. So when you know the people go and, and conquer them, it is a liberation. Mm-hmm. Some of the stories in Latin America, and I, I, I thought, you know, Roberto Bolaño did a really interesting job with this because you know he sends up Nazi literature, which is an obvious so brilliant. Well, I mean, yeah. for people that don't know the history of Latin America, um, they have a lovely history of fascism everywhere yeah, yeah, from yeah. Paraguay, Argentina, and Chile, and of course some of the backed by American backed by American presidents power, wearing course, tweed yeah. jackets. So some of those stories, though, were to in a sense normalize some of the mm-hmm. things that the people in power did. Yeah. Some of those things yeah. were stories they told themselves. They weren't stories of preservation. They were stories of control. And I think that is the, the way to flip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a really important thread to talk about in your book. Well, and I think, too, I definitely came across that idea and wanted to contest it. And so I'm looking at Adana Moreau as someone who tried, maybe even a little accidentally, to reclaim those stories for herself. And so I think reclaiming the story is what a lot of the boom, you know, boom Latin American writers did. They were 
probably the first Latin American generation of artists and writers to contest with the fact that these atrocities have been happening for three, 400 years, and we're going to examine that from a modern lens, right? From a material lens, like right. this is what imperialism and capitalism did, and we're going to... So one of my heroes has always been Eduardo Galeano, mm -hmm. who Memory of Fire trilogy addresses this exact same thing, knowing that... The stories that, that's themselves. That's what I was thinking of as well. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Mm -hmm. So in so for those for those of you unfamiliar, it's just an extraordinary trilogy that retells Latin American history, starting with indigenous myth, and then it sort of metaphorically goes through the history of Latin America in vignettes in these beautiful, small, powerful vignettes that reclaim Latin American history. Um, almost like you know a people's history of Latin America. Well, it's like Howard Zinn's take on myth, and yeah. if that makes sense to people, he did the people's history of the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, yeah, you know what I mean. But poetically, he did but, it but in poetically, very, like, very fictional. But it's it's a weird thing. Like it's a political translation of stories that were political, Cr absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. in the first place, that were you know supposed to be just nice, happy bedtime stories for people. Yes. In the original thing, so there's these multiple layers on it, which is. What makes them fascinating yeah. uh, and deep, and of course he was a genius, so that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, it helps when you're really, really brilliant. But those layers are really important to tease apart because if you don't actually think about that stuff, you're actually missing a huge part of the picture. Because some of the stories, I think, as you're pointing out, it's it's really important and really human to want to tell stories. But the flip side of telling stories is that you're also lying yes. sometimes. Absolutely. Well, Sal's grandpa did it too. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With the cassette tapes, the yeah, the uh, Vax Humana. Yes. Yeah. So the it, that was like a I I got like a Studs Terkel vibe yeah, out of absolutely. that. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I just stole. <laughs> I wrote in the book and quote Studs Terkel. Yeah, I mean hey, Studs. Don't Tur write in your books, Jeremy. <laughs> That's an arc. I mean, it's Chicago. Studs <laughs> Terkel is a titan, right? So, That's but pencil. Like, I, I think about all the time how he would walk around the city with a recorder, and he had this fascinating brilliant genial genius level way of just getting people to tell their own story like for, for people to paint a portrait of themselves finally right finally after no one asking. well and it's real people too real yeah because we're, we're so saturated with celebrity culture oh. i think about that sometimes when's someone going to do a, a turkle's place or you know, these oral histories of just normal schleppy Chicagoans like us that work for a living. And yeah, someone do that or invite us. To <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is like I'd be down. Well, they do that with the uh, what is it, the Story Corps at Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, you know where anybody can just walk in and tell their story. Oh, but I didn't know about that. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. it's usually the same twelve people that. Is it? Unfortunately, shocking. But you, like, that, that would shock you. Yes, I know, because you work in a public library. <laughs> but like the way studs don't ask. write in books. <laughs> Mary loves when you write in books. Yeah. The the way he asks questions, that his ability to listen and sort of like like transcend the perfect question at the perfect moment to get people to tell stories that likely no one ever told before. Like, I, I can't believe how many things I've read or listened to with Studs Terkel where people say I've never said this before. Did you ever get a chance to see him speak? I did. I did, too. I did. I've never... That guy loves Chicago more <laughs> than, like... I mean, he would get so excited just talking about, <laughs> they build a skyscraper on a swamp, you know, and he just... <laughs> and I remember seeing... I saw him when he was old, and he was, he was on his way out. One of the humanities festivals at Harold Wash. I think it was before I was even a librarian, so it was like over 20 years ago. Yeah. But I just remember being like, because I love Chicago too, with all its faults. Yeah. I still think it's the greatest city in the world. 
and I'm watching him, and I was just like, you know, to be that enthused about the city you live in, that's just, it's an amazing place to be. And to be that enthused about people's stories. Yes, yeah. that too. Impossibly yeah. And it's beautiful. the people that make Chicago what it is to me. Yeah. Right. Hey, that's a good place. we got to stop real quick to remind people, the people that make this radio station possible, it's called Underwriting. It's not commercials. We are speaking with the author, Michael Zapata. His new book, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, is out right now. Give him a hand, and we'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to I-94 Live at the Dial. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good evening. Here, you got a uh, brand new baby blanket, Mr. Sack. I did. It's a very nice baby blanket. Thank you, Shanna. <laughs> Jamie worked on it, too. And Jamie. Well, you know. To give he Shanna, was fishing. I was. I was. Shanna Mr. wasn't. Shanna, Shanna was not fishing. I just, I just carried it over. We are here today with the author of The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. It is out now from Hanover. Hanover is actually owned by somebody, though, isn't it? Isn't it Bristol, Squibb, Myers, McMillan, somebody like that? Um, it is HarperCollins. HarperCollins. Yeah, oh, so it's yeah. a new imprint of HarperCollins. Yeah, HarperCollins. You know, yeah. I was published on HarperCollins. How nice. nice. Cool. Oh, very good. Yeah, they bought Harker Bruce Jovanovich, so oh, yeah. Yeah, they put sports books out. Michael Zapata, who you just heard there, so please give him a hand. Uh, you know, before the break, what we were talking about was his book, but we were also talking about fiction and fiction, fictive stories, I should say, and the Latin American tradition of telling stories and how that's kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, while we were taking a quick break, Michael and I were chatting also about uh, one of the books that we discussed in the first half, and it led me to kind of think about where I kind of wanted to start off the second half, which is the fact that you know the characters in this book, uh, and I think you you brought it up yourself as well, would not have been exposed to many of the authors uh, that you actually reference in the book mm -hmm. because they're not taught in schools. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know this is a discussion that that Mike and Jeremy and I have frequently between us because you know we. We talk about authors uh, all the time, and I, I, they would never have been taught in a high school or yeah, college yeah, class. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned reading the, the Great Gatsby in eighth grade, which I think is ho a horrible idea. And I'm a huge Fitzgerald fan, but yeah, I but that's did an not, awful idea. I did and, not get it. Yeah. I did not get it at all. I, I think I had to read Tale Two Cities that year too. And I'm like, uh, why would yeah. you give kids that to well, turn? I mean, it's like, turn them off for reading for life. Yeah, you know? it's like reading Proust. I, I was assigned Proust in eleventh grade, and it's just not, it wasn't the right time to read Swan's Way. You no. know, like if <laughs> no, you, you know, <laughs> when do you have contemplative time? <laughs> right. You know, you're gonna read thirty-five pages about Madeline's. You're like, this guy stinks. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's not the right place to do it. Talk a little bit about because you were a teacher as well. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. were in the ch children first, right? For CPS, wasn't that the program? Were you for teaching the Proust in the alternative was, high school. No, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were smarter than Proust actually. Uh -huh. um, no, it was through Alternative Schools Network, okay. which okay. worked with CPS for re-enrollment students. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so and that was no insult to the students. I just I'm no, not no. a fan of Proust, <laughs> uh, which is hey, now I like Proust, but uh, <laughs> not not in eleventh grade. Talk a little bit about that, though, because, I mean, that that has been a, a tremendous frustration, I think, of ours on the show. Yeah. And I, I think of, of yours as well, because it's got to be tremendously frustrating as somebody who deals with kids to have to go and say, well, here's all the people that you could have related to who are writing books and writing stories about mm -hmm. yourself. 
And you've never heard yeah. of them because yeah. you've just had like seven years of people cramming people down your throat that maybe fine literature, but have yeah. no kind of relation to anything that's going on. And you use a good word, control. And that control, I don't think, comes from teachers, right? No, 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 I think no. it comes from admin. It comes from testing. That curriculum. Agencies. Control. Curriculum. Control. You know, so I because I worked at a school where students who had dropped out and came back, every single student who came into my classroom and they came... Um, students who were dealing with health issues, students working the night shift, students who were... Who had been pregnant, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Young yeah. parents. Um, we would have a good handful every year of brilliant punk rock kids who woke up at 16, and maybe they said, why am I reading Fitzgerald and not Philip K. Dick? Right? So my job, and I took it quite seriously, and it was, I think, the most challenging and wonderful job I'll ever have in my life, was to work with students every day who the, the large system had failed them purposefully, or like you use the word control, had tried to control them to the extent that they were forced out. They were exiled, right, from just having normal day-to-day -day lives, um, whether that was on the streets or whether that was in the school system was different for each student. And so you really have to barrel down and under, like talk to them about and work with them about what were the material consequences of their lives and why was storytelling? Does, why did storytelling even matter at that point when you're trying to pay health bills and rent, you're trying to raise your kids, and you have you know a, a, a well-meaning teacher, really an admin and testing agency, um, say you need to learn these word, these Victorian words, right? Like my students were doing documentaries on surveillance cameras. They were reading Philip K. Dick insanely well. Uh, honestly better than college students who hadn't gone through things because the paranoia in those novels, <laughs> right, of, of the state constantly oppressing you. Those amphetamines didn't help. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no. the, the paranoia <laughs> taken to the 10th level. Did you guys but read a scanner it. darkly? Huh? Did you read a scanner darkly? We, yeah, and well, well, what we read a lot, um, we read a lot of his short stories. Okay. Very accessible yeah. and quick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I found through that process was that the kernel and the actual reason for storytelling was very much present and that schooling had, had, had taught them that literature was not for them, had controlled literature outside of them. Because my students would then be forced, they would tell me, you know, we'd have testing, we'd have to do the same standardized testing, and my students would be doing these amazing things, the surveillance camera, and they would be understanding Philip K. Dick on ways where I would go home to my wife and go like, oh my God. You know, they get it. They get it better than any college student I've worked with got it. And then they would come to school and they would have to read passages from the Bronte sisters. And I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not dissing those novels, but they were novels that they, in what context is that going to be valuable for the things that they're dealing That's with just day bananas. to day? I mean, I, I, I yeah. like the Brontes myself, but, I, you know. Right. Unless, <laughs> unless they're going to teach literature, yeah. Well, there's a relevancy sense. to storytelling. Everyone, those of us who love literature, we pick up a book and there's a relevancy. We don't have to relate to it, but there's this immediate irrelevancy that threads us to a story or not. And that, to, to think that, that children and to think that high school students don't have that when they walk into a high school classroom, it, it's a crime to test them. Testing, standardized testing is a crime, and we're losing readers. Like for me... Like when we have big discussions about publishing and how do we get more books to more people and, and reading, I feel, has been one of the fundamental things that have saved my life. Me too. Uh, like how do we do that more? And, you know, it, it starts, I'm sorry, it starts in fifth grade. There are so many fifth graders who adore storytelling. 
Why, when they get to 12th grade, does that end? It's not puberty. It's control, like you said. It's yeah. absolute cultural control. Well, and I think that, you know, there's a difference between reading... You know, reading is an inherently solitary act, and if... if I, I understand the idea of teaching literature and, uh, and of teaching, you know, what in a way, what things mean, what an analogy is, you know, what, yeah, a, what yeah. metaphor is. You know, there's, there's some basics, but I think that it's very easy, unfortunately, to fall back on this idea that there's a certain set of books that if you read them and you understand them, then mm. you are a great literary person. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, saying, well, I even think... even types of criticism. Yeah. In yeah, yeah. the academic yeah. world, if uh -huh. you know how to... To use constructive criticism Ooh, yeah. and you have a better comprehension of this book. And I don't buy into that. You know, the, yeah. the, the single act I did that kept my students reading more than many of them in the And I'm, I'm talking about an academia, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah, not yeah, your yeah. kids. No, yeah. You know what I mean. So. But it, it, as far as high school, the single act I did in the classroom that kept students reading more than they had ever read, and many students who had read their first, second, and third novels, was I said, we're going to read and we're not going to do any work. I'm not going to awesome. force you to write a paper on this. We're not going to highlight the metaphors because the very act of reading is thinking. I mean, one of the most amazing things about literature is you have the best minds and the funnest minds writing down their exact thoughts. So the very act of reading is thinking like them. And so if you're forced to highlight metaphors, it becomes this like tertiary skill set. Well, you're also broken out of the story. And you're... You're, you're missing the point. It's like staring yeah. at a beautiful painting and someone like slapping you. You're like, why did you do that? I was enjoying this yeah. painting. Yeah. It's we, talked not. we talked about that with Tope last Sunday about I had an interpretation of his novel that wasn't his, but he's like, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interpretation. I wanted to ask you, uh, this is totally going off subject, what we were just talking about, but uh, Maxwell Moreau's Parallel Worlds book. Yeah. You actually want to talk about the book? For yeah. yeah. <laughs> 40, 40 minutes book. in. All Michael, right. did you write a book? No. <laughs> but um, there's a, there's a uh, passage on page 79 where they go in. Uh, he's talking about, if, uh, Javier's talking about these like parallel worlds. Did, mm -hmm. he, did he really live in Chicago? And, and there was a thing about Maxwell Moreau's theories about parallel universes. And they were talking about taking that at face value. I am not schooled in physics or anything. Yeah, is, that, yeah. is that like from quantum physics? Can, yeah. Can I piggyback off yes, that? Because I was thinking of the exact same thing. I wanted to talk about the science part of science fiction. Physics kind of draw a, a continuous outline yeah, of, yeah. of the story. It's, yeah. it's, it's always there kind of looming. Um, Maxwell, so Maxwell Moreau is Adana Moreau's son. He ends up becoming a theoretical physicist, and some of his theories are laid out in the yeah. book. But there's a lot of talk about parallel universes, even mm -hmm. though this book itself is, I wouldn't call it science fiction. There, there's science fiction looming all around yeah, yeah. It, and a lot of talk about it. But there's one point, Javier is, is, uh, is the friend of Saul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I, I won't even get into explaining <laughs> that. But but there, he's talking about parallel universes with Saul, and he's he says, um, you know, like what's the point of even thinking about what might be happening in all these other parallel universes? It, what, isn't it a crime to focus on that stuff and not talk about what we have here and now on Ooh. this earth? Does that make it like a, a a distraction instead of focusing on what's right in front of us? Is that 
Is that what theoretical well, physics does? <laughs> Could be. And well, and, and Javier is, is, is a materialist. He's a foreign correspondent, and he's forced to... Well, he goes to the, all these disaster areas in Latin America and then ends up with Saul and Katrina. Or, yeah, with, with Saul and Katrina. Um, Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, yeah. So... The only reason I said that sounded like another character. It, it did, it did. Like Saul and Katrina were a couple. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a sitcom. Um, no. And so there's this tension between, you know, with the parallel universes, there's for so many years, starting in the 1970s, you have sort of like these mathematical proofs that are starting to be developed in which they're quantum, you know, parallel universes where it's like every decision or every atom that moves has almost these infinite other options that could happen. And so it becomes very entangled, right? When you think about it. But I think the core thing of it is, is that when you also have something like an infinitely expanding universe, which is more like what we call like bubble universes, you have these mathematical proofs and you have more and more proof for the universe being of one. Like, and what do we do with that? That's like when we discovered there was more than one sun, when we discovered that there was more than one galaxy. Like, what do we do ethically? What do we do with this idea uh, of parallel worlds? I think it's like a huge ethical problem, but to bring it back into the, the narrative, it also forces us very much to think about not only every decision we make, but also the possible histories laid out before us, if that makes sense. The, uh, yeah, the possible it, futures tethered to the histories laid out before us. And so it became this idea I became obsessed with. Uh, you know, Benjamin, uh, the character in there who's a historian, is also contesting with how that it, those kind of ideas has happened in history. And I think at the end of the day, you have Javier, who's a materialist, who is saying we are forced to contest with what's in front of us, the histories before us. So... I didn't want that to be a solution in the novel. I wanted these two characters to sort of contest and debate what this massive ethical, physical. So it's more theory. of a conversation than. Well, I thought you were action. talking about membrane theory. To be honest with well, you. Well, I, th I think there are that too, are right? physicists who um, who study that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's like in, there's. The history of it is that in the 1970s, you had like these outlier theoretical physicists who were finding these mathematical proofs for parallel universes, which is just fun to read about. But as they were, they were just, pushed it's out. It's crap, right? I mean, isn't it? Well, they, the, that, they were pushed out in the 70s for that. And the problem we're dealing with right now is that there are proofs in quantum physics that are lending itself towards... Parallel universe. Right. So we're, we're are we? I don't know if Whoa. we're forced to contest. <laughs> well, like it's well, maybe one universe. Can't use the theory of relativity that Einstein did without the possibility of parallel universes. That's correct. Yeah. Einstein's basic theory says that, well, the the mathematical proof that time and mass and energy and that there is a light speed constant. If you actually go down the math, it says there have to be other universes. And some people believe that uh, actually it means that we're actually a hologram of another oh, universe, yeah, yeah. which is a tr truly wacky theory. But in, in your book, I, you mentioned bubbles. I was interested because I, th I thought you were talking about the membrane theory, actually, which is a theory that we are on a series of planes like a membrane. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there is stuff in between it, but that these universes are not necessarily, um, they're not copies of each other. Like, you know, you yeah, think yeah, of it yeah. in, you know, in comic books, you know, uh, the, Whitney the Houston. Justice League is a great example, you know, in DC Comics. Yeah, yeah. The Flash always goes to other worlds. He's running around. He meets like Superman of Earth. Fixes Four. it. <laughs> yeah, it goes to Green Lantern, Earth Nine. You know, there's the evil Superman. But that that's actually not what 
those in mathematics, that's not what it says. It just says that there are places, because of the way our physics and our universe works, mm -hmm. there have to be these other dimensions, because if there weren't these other dimensions, the physical constants of our universe could not exist. Well, and there's the simple, I, I love physics because the simple question is nobody knows where gravity goes. All of gravity is not accounted for. Right. So it's this very simple question that becomes this like elegant problem. As far as how this relates, like going back to characters, I thought of it more so than a metaphor in the sense of like when you are in exile, you are forced to contest uh, where you are, you're showing up in essentially in a parallel world, right? You're essentially showing up in a new place without the language, without the resources, without the sort of material understanding of, of how to survive in a new place. And so it becomes, I think, more deeper than a memory because for exiles and for immigrants, you are forced to contest with this fact of like the new world or also like a no parallel gravity. place. And I understand that. <laughs> I, I didn't understand much of what Jamie said. I'm not, I don't use my, what side of your brain is the... The center part. Yeah. <laughs> the center I don't use that part. part. <laughs> I, I did want to mention, though, Whitney Houston's hologram is touring. So oh, that yeah. Well, that's a, gym. that's a universe totally, I'm not sure I want to be part of. <laughs> no Bobby Brown. You know, Roy Orbison's hologram's been touring, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. I'm kind of excited. They well, did you know, a Tupac at Coachella one they year. Did they did a Tupac, Tupac hologram. Yeah, but, you know, that actually kind of gets back to fine. something that is in your book because there is a tension between what is real, mm -hmm. what is merely thought of as real, and what might be real if only we thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I, the hologram of Tupac is a great example because, <laughs> well, it is. It, <laughs> uh, it really is because, you know, here's something. I love where this is going. <laughs> well, it's created for, you know, purely commercial purposes. But, you know, it also is a way for people who have nostalgia, who never saw yeah. the artist in question, to go experience that. I mean, there was a really interesting article about Frank Zappa's family, and their touring, I think it's Dweezil Zappa, is touring, he's a, he's a drummer, he's touring with a hologram of Frank Zappa. Hmm. And he said it's, it's from a concert that his father did, I guess, in the 70s. And, you know, Frank, I guess, says, you know, kind of the same things every night, obviously, because he's a computer program and a hologram. But in the article about it, his son, you know, was playing along with it, said, you know, it's been surprisingly affecting because huh. I didn't get to do this when I was a kid because I was too young. And so I look over and I see my dad playing with me and the band every night. And it's almost like he's still here for those, huh. you know, 90 minutes or however long. I mean, Frank Zappa sets go on forever, so it's probably not 90 <laughs> minutes. Uh, I saw him at the Syracuse War Memorial. Whoo, Joe's Garage. Let me <laughs> tell you, kids. Um can't say some of the lyrics of that on the air. That to me is a really interesting thing, and it was it was kind of a point you brought up, though not obviously with holograms, mm -hmm. and not with fictive people, but there is something really seductive um, about the idea of creating something that is so real yet so fake. You kind of forget that it's fake. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The real is that American culture in general. Well. I it's fiction. Fiction. And, you know, I, found, I, I remember when I was actually teaching, I read this fun article that was about the brain that was like, the hippocampus is where a lot of memories get processed, like you're stored and organized. But it's also the first place we access when we're imagining potential futures, like our predictive possibilities. So our past and future. They're just processed in the same place. Biologically or, or processed or in the same place. Some which would I think say is there is no difference between past and future because time is not linear yeah in theoretical physics time we are the only f beings that we know of that perceive time in a linear fashion yeah and 
so I think like it, it was no surprise to me after reading things like this and the process of writing historical fiction and science fiction felt very interchangeable to me. Well, look at Adana's world too. She went from a place that was invaded, her family's murder, then yeah. she comes to the United States. I mean, those are parallel universes. And the way I perceive the Dominican Republic is probably quite different from the way she perceives it. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a theme of perception and how we see things in the world. And I think that's prevalent throughout. One of the things I, I liked about, uh, about the book was the fact that just Maxwell's a reader. He's a reader yeah. and he's not in the literary world. And I feel like that's not um, common today. It seems like yeah. that used to be a lot more common and we were talking about Studs Terkel. Yeah, in, well, in, and when you read in like his day? old novels, everyone's reading. Yeah, and you <laughs> see old movies like someone the security guards reading a book. The yeah, newspaper yeah, used to be come to your house every day too. Yeah. You know? Well, no, I mean really, I mean and newspapers and magazines. One of the yeah, guys of that's mentioned in the novel a few times is, is Isaac Asimov. Yeah, and I, I was looking up some stuff on him, and I guess he was re he's been really influential on on some prominent figures in, in the world today. Um, Newt Gingrich, among them. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know. It's Not insane. Isaac's intention. Well, Alvin Toffler, too. <laughs> so, Why'd you bring up the worst person ever? <laughs> I was just really surprised. But it just it made me think um, of a time that, that I don't know of where, where fiction could really influence the thinking of anybody. Buckrakers. Uh, do, do you see that at all today? Because You know, I... I I wonder, like my, you know, my father learned English by reading the Tribune, hmm. right? For for example, and and I don't I don't know him to have ever read a novel, but I also know him to be one of the most wild, enter, wildly entertaining storytellers I've ever will ever meet. Um, so many people say that about their family, but this is someone who holds courts with strangers <laughs> for quite some time. Um, yeah, the con the idea of the reader. I think teaching high school taught me that multitude of readers exist outside of any literary community. And so the, the, the fair I have is that we're sort of just self, you know, same thing like you said with celebrity culture. Are we just replicating? Are we just reading for ourselves? And you know, it because Namwali Serpel, who's a writer I really enjoy, she, she writes about this thing um, that some people have called like the empathy machine, right? So we have this like culture that creates novels that, and movies where we're, we're, we're gaining, you know, we're creating this machine to create empathy, but nothing happens based on that empathy. I don't trust things in which people are supposed to be soliciting empathy. But there are, if I've learned anything from teaching, it's that the act of reading is, is, is once a student has, or once a person has inhabited a story, I, I do think, I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I do think there are so many readers outside of quote unquote literary Google. culture. They all work at Google. I think. <laughs> they, they, oh. well, my dad reads. He's not reading. <laughs> oh yeah, Michael yeah, yeah, Zapata. Yeah. He's reading James Patterson. One of the best stories is Mike's dad was like, "You should get that guy like on your show." Uh, what's that guy? And Mike was like, "Elmore Leonard." He's like, "No, no, the horror guy, Stephen King. You should get go. that guy on your show." Yeah. We should get that guy on our show. <laughs> hey, we've only got a minute or two. It's pretty close. Okay. <laughs> he just came out with a new short story in Harper's. Who, yeah, yeah. King? Kings and Harper's yeah. this month. Oh, well, yeah. you know, his, his son is doing a lot of comic books too, Joe Hill. So, oh yeah, yeah. and novels. I yeah, think. he is. Warren's was good. Yeah, we, we literally only got about a minute left. Michael, th first of all, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Putting up with our nonsense. Hey, Jamie, I did want to say too. I want to thank Aaron and Mary. They're yep. uh, you. 
Thank you. We're moving to Michigan, and, and uh, I'm a little sad leaving the store. Yeah. This is uh, one of my favorite places. I mean, I'll I'll be back, but it'll be different without Air Mary. And they they let us come here every month yep. in their other bookstore. And uh, thank yeah. you so much. Yes, thank thanks to Air Mary. So so thank you guys. Uh, so as my, Jeremy just kind of spoiled, this is our last show at the Dial. We will be at Pilsen Community Books, however, with alarms probably too in, in Pilsen. You know. That's, I guess that happens still. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for all your hospitality. Thank we really you. appreciate it. I am personally only going to miss Mary's cookies, um, <laughs> but, you know, that's it. Uh, we've been speaking with Michael Zapata. He wrote The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. It is out right now. It just came out in the 4th. Michael, real quick, do you have anything else on the front burner coming up? Um, yeah, I'm in the happy stages of working on a second novel about an ecologist in the Amazon and her son, who's a census taker in Chicago in the year 2050. Cool. In 2050. Uh, in 2050. We're still going to have a census then? You're very optimistic. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. <laughs> very optimistic. Hey, everybody, please give it up for Michael Zapata. And thank you so much. We'll see you next month at PCB. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the author Michael Zapata, whose new book, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, is out now from Hanover Square. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience at The Dial on February 20th and originally aired on February 29th, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.